Welcome to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This week, we'll be looking at the freewheeling Bob Dylan. So a little bit of background, uh, Rich. Uh, so this record came out in May 1963. Of course, it's Bob's second one. And the first record, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, hadn't really been a commercial success. So there was a bit of pressure on everybody to make sure this one came out right. And one of the things that surprised me when I was uh, doing some reading for this one was that it was recorded over the course of a year. It was a whole year since his last record had come out. But the delay wasn't just down to issues with getting it out to the shops. They actually, he actually did record it over, over several months, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think an awful lot of this is probably down to the fact that he, was, he just had such an amazing burst of songwriting creativity and so much material that he was kind of going into the studio and recording and then he was able to kind of sift through it really and uh, I think that hence hence the fact that he was he was forever kind of coming back into the studio to do more recording. Yeah and that's certainly the thing isn't it that throughout 1962 and into 1963 his songwriting really just kept going to new levels until he was pretty much the complete article by the time he'd finished this record. So there was a lot going on, of course, in his personal life and uh, in, the, in the world uh, that influenced him around this time. So as you say, um, his songwriting was really exploding. And part of that was, was uh, influenced by the trip to England he took at the end of 1962, wasn't it? Where he's come out and said that he was influenced by a lot of the uh, folk singers that were doing the whole traditional English thing at the time and some of that found its way onto the record didn't it? Yeah it's interesting isn't it because you I mean I think it's one is tempted to think of him as a as as a disciple of Woody Guthrie and being the very much the American article but of course all of those songs on things like the Harry Smith folk anthology um, and all of that material that was that we considered to be kind of American came from the old country as it were and so it's, it's not that surprising really that he tuned into so many of those traditional songs and I mean that that was what people were playing in the folk clubs in in England at the time and so it's probably not that surprising that he took so much of that on board I mean we've we've already talked about the fact that he was a he was a sponge for all material anyway and so I think he he was very very quick to to listen to assimilate and to kind of make it his own essentially. So, uh, Rich, um, what's your relationship with this record? How did you first come across it? Do you have any memories of that? Yeah, I mean, I've actually listened to this as a reasonably young kid. Um, my uncle had a vinyl copy, um, and it's really bizarre because, curiously, this folk singer that was on this record, I didn't kind of equate or relate with um, them being the same person or the same villain that was the electric uh, version that I kind of discovered later on so I'd, I'd kind of had an awareness of this when I was much younger then I discovered Highway 61 and I've kind of subsequently rediscovered this one I suppose and so yeah these songs are, they've kind of been in my bloodstream for a very very long time although I didn't have any awareness of the kind of context what about you? Well the complete opposite really I mean I think as I said last week stuff like blowing in the wind I'd heard obviously as everybody does it's just part of the atmosphere isn't it um yeah, yeah. but I, I I think I came to this record actually um having already read quite a lot about Bob Dylan and like you having been really you know completely in love with the electric stuff uh, from a couple of years later 
so it was very much going backwards from that to discover this. I, I do remember it being probably the last cassette tape I bought. Um, so this would have been in the mid to late 90s when that's that's a weird time when you still had ma those massive music superstores in the middle of towns yeah. and half the half the store was CDs and half was still tapes and then the tape it just gradually dwindled down to nothing. And they got um, cheaper, they got so cheaper and cheaper, of course. That was, the, that was <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is this is undoubtedly why I bought I bought put it on cassette because it would have been about two quid by then, I reckon. But yeah, so that was it. That's one of the things that, that I remember about this record: just picking up the tiny little case and and still seeing that really famous and cool cover and, and thinking it was great but yeah at, at the time I, I liked the the sort of the easier listening songs um, I mean if there is such a thing on this record um, so you know something like don't think twice is so pretty um, I was playing guitar learning to play guitar at the time so I really wanted to to play that sort of stuff and I didn't really engage with any of the, the weightier stuff at the time uh, but as you get older or as I get older certainly um, the, the sort of heavier um, the angrier stuff, the darker stuff, has more of a kick. I think. Yeah, I think I think I agree with that. I mean, it's it's certainly. I think that the most memorable things are things like "Don't Think Twice," certainly. Um, but there's there's a hell of a lot more going on. There's there's a, there's a, a massive undercurrent, isn't there? Both political and just kind of, I suppose, him engaging with the world around him, really, on on this record. And I think it's interesting that you say that because I think your, your views of records do, they change, they alter as you, as, as, as you age really. And there's aspects, I suppose, that you can identify with Dylan, the angry young man when you are an angry young man. And, um, and then, <laughs> so, I mean, you said, uh, you said easy listening. I mean, I think he's not quite Luther Van Dross on this, but it's, uh, it's certainly, uh, <laughs> it's certainly quite easy on the ear. Definitely in comparison to what's coming up in the next couple of records, I think. But yeah, we, we thought we'd try something a little bit different today. So we thought we'd um, pick out a lyric each and kick off looking at the record in that way. So it was your idea, Rich. Um, so what was, uh, what was your choice of lyric for this one? Yeah, I've gone entirely predictable on this one. I've gone for the opening lines of Blowing in the Wind, and um, which are, of course, how many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? That opening sort of rhetorical question that he poses to the listener and it's an odd one to talk about blowing in the wind because I as with so many people I'm sure you would probably echo this blowing in the wind it's it's so kind of ubiquitous it's just part of the atmosphere it's almost impossible I think to put yourself in the mindset of someone who's who's literally listening for that to that for the first time because it's, it's just been everywhere and there's been so many versions of it etc but I was thinking about this and just thinking what kind of impact might it hypothetically have had upon me had I listened to it anew and afresh and I just think it's astonishing I think it's amazing that someone who is well 21 years old can come out with something so wise and sage-like and it's the kind of world-weary question that you would expect an old sharecropper nearing the end of their life to be able to ask. That idea of someone who's lived a very full and long life and suffered. And here he is, he's, he's 21 years old. And, and the idea that he can write something with such incredible impact and just so, 
I mean, so instantly memorable, so incredibly poetic. There have doubtless been books and huge long articles written about this song, but I just think that that grabs me every time. I mean, it, it's it just everything about it, the delivery, the the kind of sparseness of it, the sparseness of it, I'm saying parsnips of it, the sparseness, sparseness of it. Um, but also just this, this, this idea that, he kind of cuts straight to the, the sort of root of it, really. And, and so, yeah, I, I would always come back to that one. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's myriad lines that you could, you could choose um, to, to discuss from this, but I, I would go with the opening salvo there. I mean, we can talk about the fact that he stole the melody, allegedly, from No More Auction Block, which, of course, is an old spiritual uh, number about slavery essentially but going back to what i said before the idea that we are all so familiar with blowing in the wind when i first heard no more auction block i thought of it almost as being having ripped off blowing in the wind so there we go <laughs> how about you what uh, what lyric would you would you pick from this out of the the many that are on offer well just before getting into that uh, on blowing in the winds uh, i agree with all of that and for me i was so familiar with this song and I was it was just such a part of my existence really that to appreciate the lyrics anew I actually had to cheat and go and listen to the cover versions because I was I was really trying to engage and I was looking for ways to listen to it in a fresh way but whatever I did it just didn't work it was just it was just it was just there like it was in the atmosphere like you say uh, but yeah going back to the cover versions actually was quite interesting because there's a lot of them and when you hear it in that unfamiliar way it does it does really bring home the words in a in a new in a, in a fresh way um and, and you're quite right to pick from they're just astonishing aren't they uh and we're, we're going to be talking about how young he was the entire time i suppose because he, he could have retired after this record and people would still be talking about him but uh we've barely scratched the surface yeah no i think you're right definitely but yeah no i i picked a verse in the middle of uh, masters of war so i went with this one how much do i know to talk out of turn you might say that I'm young, you might say I'm unlearned, but there's one thing I know, though I'm younger than you, even Jesus would never forgive what you do. And I just thought it captures so much of what we think Bob Dylan's about. So obviously you've got this protest song, one of his quintessential ones, but also you've got this this really clear, almost manifesto of a, of a generational change. You know, he's, he's, he's saying, yes, I'm young, yes, I don't know much about your world, but I've got this moral clarity that I'm going to challenge you with and take it or leave it. You know, we're not, we're, we're here now. We're not, we're not getting out of the way. You also got this kind of almost tangential reference to him being unlearned. And that plays into a, so much of his stuff where he's not about formal education, is he? He's about following your own path, both in terms of the way he lived his life and, and so many of his lyrics later. But then also I just find the payoff astonishing. Even Jesus would never forgive what you do. I mean, wow. It's an angry song, but that line just kills me every time. And it's not even the end of the song. He's he's, he's got two more verses to throw at you. Yeah, I think I think Stag- that's that's incredible, isn't it? I mean, the idea you, you start wondering what what the hell is he got in his back pocket if he's able to put that in as as a line and still <laughs> have a minute or more of the song left. It's incredible. So a few months after the release, just a couple of months after the release of this record, he was part of the crowd. At the March on Washington, wasn't he, where Martin Luther King gave his famous speech. And yeah. I think he performed, didn't he, with uh, with Joan and, and the rest? One of the few times, I think, that he was actually played a really active part um, in that movement. I know that he was held up as this 
voice of a generation, but I don't think he used to go on, on many of the marches or things. He certainly picked a pretty high profile one to, uh, <laughs> to, be, to be involved with, though, definitely. And, and he wouldn't have been there, or at least he wouldn't have had, his appearance wouldn't have had the same impact if it hadn't been for songs like this and the impact he'd already had up to this point. It only grew on the next record. Um, and then it, it was pretty much gone after that, which is which is another story, isn't it? That we'll we'll come on to in due course. Yeah, well, completely. I mean, it's it's like different um, different eras of Bob Dylan, isn't it? It's almost like different um, ways in which painters and artists kind of mature, I suppose, and different eras that they have. Well, I mean, one of the things that we've been we've been talking about is the, the kind of big question which we're going to try and answer with regard to each of these albums on a kind of weekly basis. And so this one, I'll kind of address this one to you first of all then. So this album is held up as the peak of Dylan's early career, of course, his involvement in the protest song scene. So over to you then, Mark, how do, how do we feel that kind of stacks up? What do we think? Well, I think part of that we have to answer next time, don't we, when we look at the times we are changing? Because in my mind, I always feel that this one and that one sit together, although although they're very, very different tonally. But we are here to talk about this one. So obviously he's got he's got some of the absolute classics of the era on here, hasn't he? I mean, it's a I think you called it uh, folk greatest hits on a on a WhatsApp message to me. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, isn't it? I mean, he's 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 nailed pretty much everything on here, and I think. You know, it's so obviously influenced by the times. Um, so we've got, you know, we can pick out some examples where the Cold War really hangs over a lot of this stuff. Obviously, the civil rights movement as well. But before getting into that, I think it's really important that we we do acknowledge there's another side to this record, isn't there? And for me, there's a real emotional core to it that, that comes out in three particular songs. So you've got Don't Think Twice, which we already talked about. Girl from the North Country, and then Bob Dylan's Dream. That one in particular was one that just passed me by when I was younger. It was just ho-hum, you know, it's a pleasant tune and a nice sentiment. But I think as I get older and perhaps more inclined to look back on those sorts of events that you've had in your life, and those friendships and relationships that have been and gone, it strikes a, a chord with me more than it did. Yeah. But yeah. It's, sorry, it, Rich. Yeah, sorry, no, just diving in to talk about that one very, very briefly. I mean, it's it's incredibly melancholic and, and it's very identifiable, isn't it? In a way that a lot of what he, he does subsequently isn't. I mean, it's just, you, you really get a sense that you're hearing him. And I know that he wears masks and always um, fools and tricks people, but I, I think that one, there's definitely, the, there's a real emotional kind of idea that underpins that one. Yeah. And, and of course we don't know. We've never got any idea, have we? But you can imagine that being a bit closer to a, a confessional sort of song than than perhaps some of the other ones, the more celebrated ones later, which are obviously much more a case of him assuming a mask. But who knows? But yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, the other thing that struck me about that song, listening to it this time, was that, you know, we spent a bit of time last week, didn't we, talking, or last time, I should say, talking about the way that we associate Dylan with driving forward and, and, and never looking back. I mean, quite literally, don't look back yeah. in, in yeah, the yeah. mid-60s film. But this is, this is so different, isn't it? He, he actually is pausing looking back and it's actually the sort of song you might expect to hear from one of those singer songwriters in the late 60s i mean you can imagine james taylor sitting down and strumming out something like this i think so yeah i I find it very different from you know our our perception of him generally um, and interesting in that way and perhaps as you say it's reflective of being a little bit more connected to his personal feelings yeah and it it Um, might also it might also play into that tradition the, the sort of english folk tradition which of course he he he'd seen kind of firsthand in the writing of this album as well i think that's right yeah um and of course girl from the north country's other one that has that very clear link isn't it 
I, before before um, giving you a chance to sound off, Rich, I did just want to pick up on Don't Think Twice. So I, I, I do think that's a, a wonderful song, but it's probably the one that my relationship with this song has changed the most over the time since I first heard it. Because when I was much younger, my late teens or early 20s, I did sort of think of it as a, a love song or a even a torch song and you know looking at it now it's 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 so ridiculous to think of it like that isn't it i mean it's it's more like an anti-love song of course um and i, I just think i didn't have the emotional depth to understand that then. <laughs> but uh, perhaps that was just me but i did i did think as well just one little thing i noticed while listening to it this time was on that line uh, what is it um you just kind of wasted my precious time i think there's a little sneer that comes out on on precious time that just sort of points the way to that kind of vocal style he'd have a couple of years later where his entire records sound like they're sung in a sneer. And I think that just pokes through here, perhaps for the first time on record. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I don't think I'd ever really detected that. But um, I suppose that attitude, again, he's, he's kind of exploring things that he'd revisit later, isn't he, and develop later on. I think so. So um, what about you, Rich? Uh, what are your thoughts on the big question? Well, I suppose that the big question here, this idea of it, you know the peak of his early career etc um i think it probably is i think that on balance this is probably i mean it's certainly a stronger album than, than his debut album i'd say it's a stronger album than the times they are changing overall but what i would i mean when i i've always thought of it more as and, and it's funny i've always thought of it more in the in the tradition of of like the almanac singers so they were the that band in the sort of 1930s, 1940s, featuring um, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. And they were very known for singing topical songs. So stuff like World War II, obviously unionism, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember thinking that this, this kind of followed in that sort of tradition where this was Bob Dylan fairly overtly kind of responding to what's happening in the world around him and it's interesting going back to it i'm i'm not quite sure whether i i think that's the case i think he's a lot more elusive really if that makes sense in in terms of how this album relates to the world around him i think so Uh, i mean the obvious one isn't it is uh, hard rain which even quite soon after the fact was being talked about as a response to the Cuban Missile Crisis, whereas he'd actually performed it, hadn't he, even publicly before then. Uh, he might even have recorded yeah. it, I can't quite remember now, but um, certainly it predated it. And it's, I also find it interesting that he was, certainly was writing lots of topical songs around the time, but none of them really made it onto the record. Uh, I suppose the only real exception being Oxford Town. And as you say, all the other songs, although they are protest songs and they perhaps do or certainly do pertain to what was going on in the world at the time he was writing them, they're not specific and they are generalisable. And I guess that's why they've lasted, isn't it? I think so, because if you're singing about the headlines, I mean, it's that old saying, isn't it? Today's newspapers, tomorrow's fish and chip wrappers or whatever. But um, people have fairly short memories of things like this, whereas these songs have endured. And I think it's because there's there's something in them that it's not kind of indigenous to that particular moment in time, is it? And I mean, the the shadows of the Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis, etc., they're definitely there, aren't they, within this record? But I think it's more, there's a sense sort of, there's a sense of anxiety and worry that I think goes through this. I mean, there's an awful lot of very dystopian and disturbing imagery in, in things like Hard Rain and Masters of War and stuff like that. And so I think it, it's it's much more subtle um, the way that he actually relates to, to current affairs uh, with um, obviously Oxford Town notwithstanding. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, when we think about the 60s, the early 60s now, we, we think about the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis and the civil rights movement as being the big currents in, in America at the time. And and I think you're right. The Cold War is the one that, that has a, there's a lot more, there's a lot more of a shadow of a Cold War than the civil rights movement to, to my ears now in this record. But would you agree? And, and what, what bits in particular do you strike you from that from that point of view? Yeah, I think I probably would agree. I think there is more Cold War than civil rights on this. And I mean, he obviously goes on on the next album to really explore the civil rights movement in a in a big way and the, the ideas that underpin it. I mean, I really like Oxford Town. I, if, if I was pushed to kind of talk about highlights of, of, uh, of this album, I'd, I'd probably put Oxford Town down. I mean, obviously, it's about James Meredith. It's about what happened at the University of Mississippi, etc. And I, I really like that. But I, I do think, as, as, as you say, this is probably more about the Cold War. I think this song's a bit of an anomaly on, on this record, really. But that's that's one of my highlights uh, certainly of, of this and and i i love blowing in the wind as well as i've already said but i think that blowing in the wind it, it's just it, it could be about kind of anything couldn't it it, it could be mm. it could be about the cold war but it could be written tomorrow and it would still be equally relevant definitely and i think that's the the thing that makes this record so great one of the things that makes this record so great is this there's three really big sort of general protest songs Blowing in the Wind, Masters of War and Hard Rain. Although I suppose in a way you could you could question whether Hard Rain's a protest song in the strictest sense of the word. But they're all so different in tone, aren't they? Uh, the, the way he performs them, the language that he uses, the melodies, they're very, very different. When we talk about Dylan as a protest singer, he's not a one-trick pony, is he? No, absolutely not. And um, I think that this, it's little wonder that the album took as long as it did to actually record because it's clearly very, very well thought out. He's, uh, it sounds a little bit callous, doesn't it, and calculating, but I think he's, he's really striven here to, to tick an awful lot of boxes, which, which, which will please his listeners, really. I realised I was, I was going to ask you, I, I already kind of inadvertently talked about my highlights of, of this album. It's just changed tack slightly. I won't bother going into my low light too much. It's honey, just allow me one more chance. I don't think we need to say very much about that. But what about you, sort of like highlights, low lights here? Yeah, I, I do like Masters of War. I, I find this a very strange record, though, because as you say, there are, there are some slighter songs, aren't there, uh, which... Are almost not in keeping with the, the rest of the record and I don't know we'll, we'll see as we go through but I find this quite a lot with Dylan's records although he's very associated in the minds of people probably people like us who are you know mojo and uncut readers back in the day and who think about things like their favorite 50 albums from 1965 and so on <laughs> uh, he's, he's thought of as one of the big album guys isn't he you know with all those other classic rock artists but yeah it's, it's, it's always there's always something that makes you think hmm you know did he really think this through or not and i think i shall be free is evidence in, in that corner but yeah no I, it's, it'd be interesting to to see how how i feel about that over the next few records but um I've gone off piece there, I accept. So um, getting back to the highlights and the lowlights, I could I could have chosen anything really, but I am going to do something a little a little bit off and uh, and pick the same song for both, and that's Hard Rain. And I know that's cheating, but I really struggled with this. And the thinking behind it is just that I think there's a very strong case for thinking of Hard Rain as the absolute centerpiece of this album. I was trying to do a thought experiment where I imagined this record without Hard Rain, and I think it would be a very very different beast. Yeah, it's clearly the most ambitious song. It's it's staggering good uh, and, in, and in the way that we've 
discussed already, you know, so many of the lyrics must have really landed then, but they land, they land just as much now. And actually, in contrast to Blowing in the Wind, because I must have heard this song almost as much as Blowing in the Wind, certainly in Bob Dylan's version, but the lyrics still sting. They still, they still land every time you listen to it. So I think it's got to be the, the, the highlight if I'm thinking about it in, uh, in a headway. Yeah. So what, how how come but, your, your how come it's got this sort of double edge? It's like a double edged sword. Then how come it's the low light as well? Out of interest. Yeah. Well, that's where I move from my head to my gut, um, and it's got this horrendous, nightmarish quality for me. When I hear the first few bars, it's just like you're on the edge of a nightmare, and you're fast asleep. Of course, you can't wake up, and you're slipping into it, and it's it's that kind of horrible feeling. But at the same time, you really want to experience what it's going to be like. And it's an extremely difficult listen, I think. So, so dark, so upsetting, and so many lines which work in the cumulative effect of the imagery that's being created, but which if I take out in isolation, I can't actually get a feel for what they're what they're symbolizing or what they're meaning. And I think that's part of the unsettling effect. But how about you, Rich? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I'd go along with that. I, I think it's a wonderful song, but it's not an easy listen. And it is very disturbing and it's very dystopian. Yeah, I think I think that's that's quite a good sales pitch. You can you could sell it as the, as the as the best song on here and the worst song on here. I mean, it's clearly not the worst song on here, but I think it's in terms of the effect, it's the it's probably the most. It's the one that leaves the the, the biggest legacy in a in an unsettling way. If that makes sense. I think so. And, and one of the things that struck me this time listening to it is that it's so, I think one of the things that makes it so dark, apart from the imagery, is that you, you think of the hard rain and people have said simplistically, I've made in the past, that it's it's nuclear fallout or nuclear bombs falling or whatever it might be. But an interpretation like that suggests that we're in a, we're in a world that's chugging along and then something terrible is going to happen. But actually, the interpretation is we're already living in this horrendously compromised, awful, nightmarish world, which is teetering on the brink and then the hard rain's going to fall and and what's he going to do about it well he's going back out again before the rain starts falling so he, he, he's not going to stop it no one's going to stop it but you know it's more i, th- I feel it's it, you could imagine this song actually on slow train coming i think it's got that kind yeah. of vibe to it there is there's, there's religious sort of overtones or undertones to it and it is it's that nightmarish vision but there's a kind of acceptance isn't there it's just like well this is this is where we're at and that's how things are going to be which is uh, it's pretty fatalistic isn't it definitely the very last thing i wanted to say about this uh, was just that i also think there's this idea of the big bob dylan song isn't there we get to uh, Stuff like uh, Idiot Wind and Desolation Robe, Sad-Eyed Lady, in short order. And I think this is the first one, really. I think it's definitely the big song of this record. It's attracted the most attention, probably. And it's in good company, isn't it? Indeed, it is, absolutely. So, yeah, I think we're about ready to wrap up, aren't we, Rich? Um, One thing we like to do at the end of these is just think about what what the records made you uh, think about and move on to. How about for you? Has it it led you to look into anything else? Yeah, I mean... I the the thing that it's it's led me to to listen to more is let me die in my footsteps, which is actually a kind of outtake from these sessions. It's this let me die in my footsteps is very obviously about the Cuban missile crisis. It's on the bootleg series or one of the bootleg series, and I really like it as a folk song because where hard rain is full of ambiguity, let me die in my footsteps is just very accusatory, very direct, and. And pretty obvious really so I've, I've enjoyed kind of revisiting that and of course it, it sits alongside all of this stuff that we're, we've been listening to on this record anyway what about you in terms of springboard what's it has it led you on to anything else well it's funny because obviously 
we're recording this in uh, April 2021, uh, so a bit about a year since Bob last surprised us with his uh, murder most foul, all about JFK. And, and and Kennedy lurks behind this record, I think. I mean, it's obviously the Cuban Missile Crisis in the Cold War. He, he plays a big part in that. Um, he gets name-checked, doesn't he, along with Bridget Bardot late, late on, um, which I love. And I went back and read a book I'd read a few years ago about um, Kennedy's election, where he had his primary against uh, Johnson and then the general election against Nixon. Some fantastic stuff in there about Kennedy as this very flawed individual, obviously heading towards a tragic end, although no one could have predicted it even at the time this record came out. But I think that just gives you a little bit of a flavour of the, the political climate that this this record sits in. Yeah, absolutely. So, Mark, last thoughts then on, on the freewheeling Bob Dylan? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, he was he was soon to be in Washington um, performing to 300,000 people, however many it was. And I, I think that really was, this record really is the springboard to Dylan as voice of a generation. And of course, the cover version of Blowing in the Wind, Peter, Paul and Mary came out, didn't it, shortly afterwards. And that was it. He, he became an incredibly wealthy, successful, iconic, scrutinised young man. And this is the last time that we see him without that Superman cape, I guess. He's still that hopeful in Greenwich Village, trying to make his way, blessed with this incredible talent. But he still didn't know quite where it was going to take him, did he? And this is goodbye to that person after this we're presented with the icon yeah i totally agree with that i think in terms of i, I don't think i've got any other last thoughts other, other than to steal yours really i think you're right we see the birth of the bob dylan really that we all kind of know at this point in time so yeah i like that it's the last time we see him without the superman cape i think that'd be a more suitable way of ending <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. Join us next time when we'll be talking about times that are changing. Please subscribe and tune in to future episodes and you can find us on Twitter. Search at Dylan American.